All right. Sounds like you had a chance to fellowship. Good to be uh, with you. Good to be inside. I like being outside, but from the perspective of hearing your voices when we sing, what a sweet time that was. Amen? All right. Kathy agrees. Fantastic. Thank you. You can turn with me in your Bibles, please, to uh, Acts chapter 9, where we're going to continue our look at that uh, amazing account of the conversion of Rabbi Saul. We're going to pick up uh, with sort of part two of that particular message today. If you're here with us for the first time, uh, we welcome you. Thank you for being here uh, and pray the Lord will speak to your heart. If you're here for the 500th time, thank you for being here. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart uh, as well. Father, open up our hearts uh, to hear from you. Lord, I, I pray that even uh, today's message, in, in addition to being edifying and teaching and um, all those things we always look for, Lord, I, I do pray that it would also be um, inspiring in some regard, either for ourselves or for someone we care about that uh, seems to be distant and lost and uh, without um, that there is no hope for that person. And Lord, to see the way that uh, you intervened uh, in the life of this man, Saul, and you brought him to his senses, you opened up his eyes, you gave him uh, instantaneously new life. Lord, that just infuses hope into each one of us, whether it's for ourselves or someone we care about. And so do that today, we ask. Bless your word. Thank you for it and the gift of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I pointed out, we're going to, this is part two. So if you didn't get a chance to hear part one, uh, it was really good. Uh, it, it was, it was average, I guess. Um, but it, we have it online, so you can go back. You can check that out online here. Um, but I'll remind you that the last time we were together, we were looking at this fellow Saul, who was a rabbi uh, within Judaism. He was not a Christian. He was a Jew. Um, and was very much against uh, this new Christian movement that was growing and developing and seeming to take the world by storm and had, it, had even determined on his own if need be, I am going to put an end to this religion and I'll go anywhere I need to do so, this pernicious sect that just seems to keep advancing, I'll do what I need to do. And we learned a few things about him. In chapter 9, verse 1, we learned that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, it tells us there. He took it on himself. And, and again, uh, some of those disciples are 120 miles away, and it was his mission. I'm going there to stop them. No interaction with those people on a day-in and day-out basis. They could do whatever they wanted. It shouldn't necessarily impact them in any way, but he was determined. I'm going to stop this new Christian sect. It tells us in another place, eight, chapter 8, verse 3, that he was ravaging and causing havoc among the church. And I'll remind you there that that word ravaging speaks of a violent tearing apart, much like an animal that would seek out its prey would catch it and tear it apart. That's what the word means there. This is what this rabbi was doing to Christians. We learned last week in chapter 9, verse 1, that he secured letters from the high priest so that he could travel to these foreign cities and he could go into these synagogues and he could find those Jews that were in these synagogues that were pointing people to the Messiah and he could drag them off to trial and prison in the city of Jerusalem. 
And that man, that Rabbi Saul, who I think rightfully the church might have called the enemy of the church in the first century, I think rightfully uh, it's remarkable to consider what happened to him. He saw the light, literally. He saw the light, and he came to know that rather than serving God with the things that he was doing by persecuting the church, that he was actually coming against God by doing the things that he was doing. Chapter 9, verse 4, it says, when Saul encountered the Lord, the Lord said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And again, as we learned last time we were together, Paul knew, or Saul knew immediately that the one that he spoke to, he knew that there was the Lord. He just didn't quite know who the Lord actually was, but he knew I'm in the presence of the Lord. And he asked the question, who are you, Lord? And Jesus answered, as you know, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Imagine the shock that came to Rabbi Saul when he realized that everything that he had been doing in his life, everything he had given himself to, had been wrong. And he was actually coming against God with the things that he was doing. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And that was all that Saul needed. That phrase, that word, that acknowledgement, I'm Jesus, whom you've been persecuting, was all Saul needed to do. In Acts 22, where Paul retells the story of his conversion, he says, what do you want me to do, Lord? What do I need to do? Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to respond in these things here? Acts 22.10 says, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told what it is you are to do. From that, from that moment prior, from, uh, for the rest of his life, up to that particular moment here, Saul had been doing what he wanted to do, what he thought was best, what he perceived God wanted for him to do. But from this moment in time, from here in Acts chapter 9, from this moment in time in his life, Saul would seek instructions from the Lord. What is it you want me to do? Where is it you want me to go? How is it you want me to live? What is it you want me to say? It's from this moment of conversion. And so the Lord tells him, we read it again in verse 6 of chapter 9, rise and enter the city, and there you will be told what you are to do. To say it another way, Jesus says to him, go into the city and await further instructions. Don't you just love that? Not at all. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's great. I love it when I have no idea what I'm doing and I just have to wait on the Lord. That's not what I typically like. What I typically like is for it to all be laid out in front of me so that I can sign off on it and approve it. And yet, this is what the Lord does. The Lord leads us a step at a time. And he says, look, you don't need to worry about the rest. I need you to obey me and I need you to trust me. And Paul is immediately going to learn this particular lesson. This is what I want you to do. Obey me in that. We used to teach our kids that. You know, you don't need to know all the answers. You need to know this particular thing I need you to do now. This is what the Lord said to him. And so he says, I want you to go into the city, and I want you to wait there. In so many words, he says, I want you to wait there for further instructions. That's how the Lord directs us. He directs us one step at a time, asking us to walk by trust and in obedience. Ours is to be obedient to what we have been instructed to do. And then the Lord will provide further instructions. They'll be revealed to us as we move down the line. Again, do you love that? No, it's hard. That's hard to live by faith in that particular way. 
But that's what it means for us to grow as Christians. As we grow in our relationship with God, we come to this point. It's one of the things that women have been studying as they've been going through the entire Bible, looking at the goodness of God. One of the reasons they're doing that is not just for like trivia or whatever. The more we understand the goodness of God, the more we can trust God. And the more we can trust God, we can obey God, even in those things that we don't fully know and those things that we don't fully understand. Paul's going to learn that lesson right from the start. For many of us, it's a lesson we keep on learning. Paul learns it right from the start. The Lord said, I want you to go. I'll tell you more what to do later. But Saul understood right from the beginning. What do you want me to do, Lord? Right from the beginning, something he would later articulate wonderfully in his le- one of his letters to the church in Corinth. Saul said this. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now notice these words. And you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. What an important lesson for us to nail down. I know that with my head. I don't fully know that with my heart. I still hang on. No, no, it's my life, Lord. And from time to time, I'll let you have aspects of it and parts of it. No, it's his life. He bought me. My life is not my own. He is the owner. Paul learned that right from the start. And that's, again, what it means to be a follower of Christ. So let me, let me just kind of apply a little bit to this before we continue to move on. We haven't really started. This is still the review from last week here. But uh, a few things that we've learned here uh, or questions I want to pose to us is this. Number one, what is God calling you to be obedient in today? What is he calling you to be obedient in today? Number two, what's God calling you to trust him in doing All right, Lord, I'll do it, and I'm going to have to trust you. What's he calling you to trust him in doing, even when your knowledge is incomplete? We're called to walk in obedience. So spend some time pondering that, perhaps this week. What's an area God's calling me to step out in, to trust him in, to be obedient in? And it it could be something like dealing with the relationship that you're in. It could be something like letting go of bitterness. It could be forgiving a person. It could be picking up the phone and calling a person and saying, you know what, I need to apologize to you. The Lord lays things on our hearts, ours is to respond in obedience. Continuing in our passage, verse 7, it says, Now the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. Now those men that we're talking about, maybe they were soldiers of some sorts. One way or another, they were a member of Saul's entourage. They were people that were traveling with him. And they're clearly aware that something is going on. Last week we saw that they all fell. So they're clearly aware that something is going on. But the specifics of the experience that Saul is having, the members of his entourage are not necessarily having. Now remember from the story of Acts chapter 9, we have it retold in two different places in the book of Acts. You can find it in Acts chapter 22. You can find it in Acts chapter 26. And in those instances, sometimes there's additional information that wasn't included here. Not contradictory information or anything like that, but just, oh, that happened as well. How about that? That is given in those other particular passages there. In Acts 22, in that account, we learned that Saul's companions saw the bright, glorious light that Saul saw. But in light of the passage that we have here, they didn't actually see the Lord, whereas Saul did. 
So Saul saw this glorious light, and it was the Lord, and he was interacting and communicating with the Lord. Those individuals saw that light as well, but they didn't actually know that it was the Lord. So that's one thing that we, we catch here. Secondly, again in Acts chapter 22, we learn that the people that were with Saul, they heard the voice of the Lord speaking to Saul, but they didn't actually understand what the voice of the Lord was speaking to Saul. So in 22.9, it says that, my companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one that was speaking to me. And so it's almost as if, and I don't think this is the scenario, but it's almost as if something that you might be able and I might be able to relate to, as if uh, two people were having a conversation in another language. And you come across it, you can clearly hear something's going on, but you don't know what they're saying to one another because you're not privy to that particular language. It's, I'm reminded, we read in John chapter 12, there was a similar situation where the father spoke to the son and Jesus, the father spoke to Jesus, and those that were gathered around, they heard this, but they thought that it was thunder or something like that. It says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. I'll do it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. So the voice went forth, but they didn't catch it. They didn't pick up on it. That's what's going on here in Acts 9. Those that are, with, that are with the Apostle Paul, or the man who would become the Apostle Paul, see and hear, but don't fully engage in the experience themselves here. And, and as the passage goes on to say, they remained there speechless. You know, there's, what is going on? This is quite a trip that we're here. Verse 8. Now Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. From this experience, Paul was blinded, at least uh, to, in, in some manner uh, of speaking. He was blinded by this experience, and I suspect he turns to his disciples, or these people, everyone's standing there, and he says, bring me to the city, lead me into this particular city. And in verse 8, it tells us that's what they did. They, they took him by the hand. And they gingerly, carefully, they guided him into the city of Damascus. Now consider just, and I know it was last week, but I imagine you read the passage uh, before or perhaps in preparation for today. Paul had intended to go into Damascus like a, you know, a ball of fire. He intended to go in shock and all. I'm going to tear down this synagogue. I'm going to pull out all those people here. No one's going to have time to run away. You know, that's how he intended to go into the city. A raging, violent man. Instead, he has to come in being carefully led by the hand of those that he was traveling with. God has a way of breaking even the most proud. He has a way of breaking even the most proud. I'll tell you, it's not, always, uh, it's not always a fun experience. But it's what the Lord needs to do, that we might be more like his son. And so he breaks Saul. He blinds Saul. Paul, or Saul has to come uh, led into the city with the help of other people. Clearly not this raging, violent man that he intended to be. Verse 9, and for three days he was there without sight, and he neither ate nor drank during those days. All he could do was simply sit there in blind silence. He was so shaken by the experience that Luke points out that he didn't eat or drink for three days. 
Now, the text here, it doesn't say what he did during those three days. But look down at verse 11. We see that he remained there and that he was praying. Verse 11 concludes that way, and he is praying. In verse 12, we see that he, he received at least one vision during his time in this you know, silent state there um, for these three days. And so perhaps he had additional interactions with the Lord as well, in addition to that one uh, vision that he received there. I, I think it's pretty safe to assume that he did a lot of thinking during that time and praying and communicating with the Lord. I think we're safe in assuming that this was a time where Saul rethought everything that he thought he knew about God and what it meant to live a life that was pleasing to God. I suspect this was a very humbling time for this one up-and-coming, great up-and-coming rabbi that was about to take the world by storm. I suspect this was a very humbling time for him. This was the beginning of the process of God breaking Rabbi Saul, transforming Rabbi Saul through the renewing of his mind, which is, again, something he would write about a number of years later in the book of Romans. The account goes on. Let's pick up in verse 10. I'm going to read now from 10 to 19. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus whose name was Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, you, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Ananias is one of my favorite guys in all of the Bible. I'm going to take a drink about it. So I can tell you why. It says that he was a disciple of Damascus and that his name was Ananias. He was a regular guy. Some versions translate it, there was a, a certain disciple we might say something like, yeah, there was this fella from Damascus. He's nobody special. He's not a prophet. He's not an apostle. He's not an elder. He's not a deacon. He's not somebody we hear anything else about after this fact. He's just a certain disciple, a regular guy that the Lord called to take an amazing step of obedience, that he might minister God's grace to a person in need of that grace that he might minister God's love to the man who would go on to become the Apostle Paul. Again, we don't know anything about Ananias. We don't read anything about him before or after. Just a simple, ordinary, obscure individual that was called to the service of God and was called to obey the Lord. The Lord calls his name and he says, Here I am, Lord. And in the span of ten verses, 
now, from the beginning of the chapter to now, we have seen the Lord interact with two different men, with Saul and with Ananias, and to do so in a very, very different way. And so with Saul, it was almost violent in nature. Saul is knocked down. People think from a horse, we don't necessarily know, but Saul is knocked down on the ground. He's confronted uh, by this bright shining light. He's blinded by the experience. When you look at the interaction that the Lord had with Ananias, it seems that it's much more softer in nature, peaceful in nature. It's very specific in nature. Ananias, he calls to him. Ananias' attention has been gotten, and he responds, and the Lord explains what he wants for him to do. Two very different experiences, which speaks to this idea that the Lord might minister in very different ways in people's lives. Ananias is a willing servant. He simply says, here I am, Lord. And then notice, very specifically, God lays out, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the straight street. It's still in Damascus, apparently. Like it's the main thoroughfare now. They've modernized it a bit with blacktop and stuff. Um, but I want you to go to Straight Street. I want you to go to the house of Judas. And there you're going to find a man. His name is Saul. And don't, be, don't get a misunderstand. It's the Saul that's from time. Very specific that the Lord gives him these instructions here. Again, very different from the one that Saul saw. Now Why? Why the dichotomy of experiences? Shouldn't it all be the same for every single person? Well, one, it's God's prerogative. God can speak and minister the way that he wants to to particular people. Two, I think Saul needed to learn submission from the very beginning. And the Lord knows that. You remember when Jesus encountered the fellow that was um, filled with leprosy? And Jesus comes to that fellow and he puts his hand on that fellow. You don't put your hand on a person with leprosy. And Jesus heals that man. You recall other instances, Jesus simply spoke to people. All right, so Jesus, no, you stay there. Don't come any closer. God healed this man. Jesus could have done that. But this man needed the healing touch as much as he needed to be physically healed. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus ministered to him according to his needs. Saul needed to learn submission. He needed a breaking process. And so the Lord works in the way that he does. He reveals himself in the way that he does. Ananias here was a fellow that was going to be asked to do a very dangerous thing. Now, you may be hearing this and think, well, what's so dangerous? Go down to a particular house, knock on the door, and go talk to the guy that is there. The guy that was coming into the city to kill all the Christians. All right? That's what Ananias is called to do. Go to that particular guy. And so all along the way, I think Ananias is one that is going to need confirmation through this particular process here. And so, again, we learn a couple of things. One, God doesn't always work in the exact same way as he communicates to people. Two, we need to be discerning. As we, we think we have a leading from the Lord, we may not see visions as much as we might hear the Lord. As we think we're hearing from the Lord, we need to be discerning. Is this really the Lord? Does it agree with the scripture? Is this the direction that God is moving? As I share with other people, do they say, yeah, I think that is the Lord as well. We need to be discerning. Ananias is discerning. God's given him these specifics as he moves forward in faith. Again, he's told to go find a man from Tarsus named Saul. I tried to picture his facial response. A guy from Tarsus. Lord. 
he'll go on to tell us, look at verse 13, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. He knows right away who it is, and so it's not hard to imagine what his face looked like. Disbelief. Are you sure? Are you talking about the same? Are we talking about the guy that came here to kill everyone? But if we look at verse 13, it says, Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to bind, arrest, bring to trial all that call on your name. Now that objection, I think, is a, is a perfectly natural objection. If we didn't have that objection, I'd be a little concerned about, you know, don't you follow the news? Don't you see? You know, like you, you should know, you should be aware. He has that natural objection, and I get that. Maybe he gets a little off, though, when he feels he has to instruct the Lord or maybe correct the Lord. Because notice uh, he goes on to sort of explain, Lord, this is the guy. Are you sure you're talking about the right guy? You know, and all this kind of stuff. He kind of instructs the Lord. That seems to be a mistake. <laughs> we shouldn't do those sorts of things. But I get his initial objection. He, it almost reminds me of when Mary, the mother of Jesus, was told uh, that you're going to have a baby. And her response is, you know, how can this be? I've never known a man. That, that's sort of a natural objection. And then the explanation had to come, well, what's, born, what's uh, conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. Oh, okay. You know, so it seems that Ananias needs a little more information here. He's ready to do what God's called him to do, and he does it. Verse 15 goes on. The Lord said, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God had a call on this man's life. God knew what he was going to do in this man's life since before the guy was born. But even, you know, the weekend leaving up to his trip on Monday morning, the Lord knew what he was going to do in this guy's life here. And he had a call on Saul's life, which it seems he hadn't revealed to Saul yet, but that he had revealed to Ananias to go and sort of say that almost to Saul. Then the Lord says to Ananias, he's a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to carry my name to the Gentiles. He's going to carry my name before kings and queens and before the Jewish people. Notice God calls him a chosen instrument long before Saul did anything worthy of God calling him that. He's been a, a Christian, and some people don't even think he's yet a believer, that he becomes a believer after Ananias comes in. I think he became a believer at the conversion of the Lord, you know, but whatever. But he hadn't done anything for the Lord yet. So it's not like he proved himself. You know what? You're really impressive. I think I'm going to make you the apostle to the Gentile. None of that. God chose him when he was a worthless louse, killing people in the name of God. God looked at what Saul could become, not what he presently was. Isn't that wonderful? Because that's how the Lord looks at us. You live with yourself. You know what you think. You know the things you do when nobody else is around. You know you're a louse. I know that I fall short of even my own standards of what God might want for me to do. But the Lord looks at us as what we're going to become, not what we are. And that gives us hope to keep walking with him. And when we fall and when we, we sin, we stumble, to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, would you cleanse me once more? I love that verse in 1 John chapter 1. I'm sure you know it. If we confess our sins... 
God's faithful and he's just. And he'll forgive us our sins. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Such an important verse. If you've never memorized that verse, you need to. It's like a lifeline verse. The Lord loves us. Amen. So he says, this man will be my witness before the Gentiles and the kings and the, child- and kings and the children of Israel. Now imagine what Ananias, when he comes in, he sees a man sitting on the ground, hasn't eaten in three days, some kind of scales on his eyes, blinded by the circumstances, looks like a weak individual, helpless individual, and God says, that man is going to bring the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul will go on to become known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to speak before kings and queens uh, as well, and he's also going to declare the good news to the people that he loves so much, Paul that is, the Jewish people. Additionally, notice the Lord reveals to Ananias, and he's also going to suffer much for the ministry, for God's namesake. He says, I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Important that we catch that. I think a lot of us, many of us, we look and say, oh, man, I'd love to be an Apostle Paul. You sure? Because there's great suffering that came with that ministry role. As Saul would soon discover, God's will for his life would be for him to live a life, leave a life, I should say, of privilege, of renown. He was the up-and-coming rabbi. He had a seat at a young age in the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the day, those sorts of things. And God's will for his life would that he would leave that life of privilege and renown to instead embrace a life of difficulty, a life of suffering, a life of submission to others. You remember later in the book of Acts, if you've read ahead, where the, that particular prophet, I think it was Agabus, but I forget, and he takes a belt, a, a rope or something that he was using as a belt, and he ties himself up. I think he took Paul's. And he tied, get off of me. Can you imagine someone come up taking your belt off you? And he he ties up himself and he says the owner of this belt is going to be tied up in the same way or whatever. He left this life of privilege to embrace a life of difficulty, suffering, submission to others. But he did so for the glory of God. And again, the moment that he encountered the Lord, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. That was all that he needed. And he knew. And his life was forever changed. Paul would later write about this idea in Philippians chapter 3. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, and that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, and I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. New convert to the faith. He would speak before kings and queens. He'd be used to take the gospel to the nations of the world, but he would do so with great suffering. But before all of that, the first thing he needed would be to be restored. 
And God's going to use Ananias to do that. Verse 17, so Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and he laid hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, don't miss the act of obedience on the part of Ananias. God calls him to go to the man that had specifically come to the city of Damascus to arrest and lead off the trial people like himself. Ananias' friends. This man came into this town to harm them. And after a clarifying question, Ananias, it says, it says there, so Ananias departed. Don't miss the remarkable level of obedience on the part of this man. There's a pattern that we're discovering in the book of Acts. And as you sort of let your mind kind of play over the pages of scripture, you see it's a pattern that has repeated itself from the very first book of our Bibles. And the pattern is this, that God uses those that respond in obedience. God's going to use somebody. He uses those that respond in obedience. Peter and John, you recall back in Acts chapter 4, they said we had to obey God rather than man. God used Peter and John in that chapter. Philip in Acts chapter 8 was commanded to leave, lead a, leave a great revival where he was really being used in a great way that he might go and he might reach just one guy elsewhere. And Philip obeyed. And God used him not only to reach that one, but many others that would come to the faith as well. Saul, as we learned in our study last week, was told to go into a city and he was told to wait, which he did. And we know and we'll see. God would go on to use Saul greatly. And here now we have Ananias, who's told to go and minister to the man that everyone's been warned about as being out to get him. And his response is to obey. It's a pattern that holds true. And it will continue. And the result is going to be God's blessing on his life, just as it was on those other people's lives. And just as it will be in our lives as well. As we obey the smallest of things God's motivating us or teaching us to do, God blesses. So it says he departed and he entered the house of which Saul was staying. And he goes into that house and he walks over to this man. It's clear who he is. He walks over to this man. He lays his hands upon him on his shoulder, on his head maybe, crossed his eyes perhaps because they were scaled over as they were. And then notice what verse 17 says. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Now read again for a moment Ananias' words back in verse 13. Because remember in 13, that's where God called Ananias and what Ananias said to the Lord. Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. Notice how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. All right, so in the context of what he just did, think of those words. Ananias was fully aware of who this guy was and what this guy had done. He was fully aware, as Acts chapter 8, verse 3, that this man went into people's homes, dragged men and women out of those homes, and carted them off to prison. He was fully aware, as we learned, that he approved and authorized the execution of Stephen. We learned in another place, in Acts chapter 26, when he's retelling this story, 
we learned that one of the things that he did is he dragged people out of their homes as he threw them down on the ground and he said, blaspheme the name of Jesus and I'll let you live. And many did. He forced many to blaspheme the name of Christ so that they wouldn't be killed or thrown in jail. And he was remorseful the rest of his days uh, after he came to see the truth. In Acts 22, verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way unto death. All right, so with all those things in mind, now let's go back to what Stephen said in verse 13. Lord, I, I've heard what evil this man has done to your saints. That's the evil that Saul had done to those that named the name of Christ. And that's the evil that he was coming to Damascus to do to people like Ananias and Ananias' friends. And God said, I want you to go pray for that man. And he went and he laid hands on him and he prayed for him. And he said to him, Brother Saul, I think a lot of us would have liked to have laid hands on Brother Saul, but not the way that Ananias did and not the way that the Lord meant. I think my tendency would be to grab a shoulder nice and hard and pinch that part that hurts and just let him know and then pray for him, you know, but just to let him know, you know, something here. And yet Ananias calls him Brother Saul. That's remarkable, isn't it? I don't know if I could bring myself to call him Brother Saul, at least not that day. Maybe eventually I'm open to the idea, but I want to see some change first. I want to see that you really repented of that evil. So he enters the room. Saul's blind, so Saul isn't going to be able to read on his face what's going on. But I have to imagine he felt it in his touch, and I certainly think he heard it in his words. And he said, Brother Saul, and I bet Brother Saul started crying. God used Ananias to be the conduit of love and mercy. And who's Ananias? He's just some fella from Damascus. Nobody special, he's not an apostle, not a prophet. He's just a certain disciple, just like every one of us. And God can use us to be conduits in the lives of others of his love and his mercy if we will but obey as he directs. Isn't that incredible news? Isn't that encouraging? Well, there's, last point, there's one quick nuance that I think we might miss. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me here that you might regain your sight. You remember when Saul encountered the Lord uh, with the bright light? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, we use the word Lord a lot in our context and things like that. So let's just for a moment change the words, wording here to really get, I think, what is being driven home here. Saul encountered Jesus. He says, who are you, Lord? Instead of Lord, let's just say that it said, who are you, great one? Now comes Ananias in saying, the great one has sent me to come speak to you. You see sort of the connection now. When I read Lord, I'm like, yeah, I hear the word all the time in the Bible here. But in that moment in time where Saul is sitting there to hear that the one that he encountered, the one who, whose title he knew but his name he didn't know, 
Here now, coming to him, is this fellow who said, he sent me to come talk to you, to pray for you, that you might be restored and filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, and then he arose, and he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And presumably, he was baptized by Ananias. Nobody big, nobody special. We don't know if Ananias said first thing you need to do is get baptized or if Saul, who had seen plenty of Christians be baptized in Jerusalem, if Saul said, I need to be baptized, we don't know. But we see that he was baptized immediately something like scales just before that baptism fell from his eyes. We have that expression of the scales being removed from our eyes and we talk figuratively. All of a sudden I could see something I didn't, I couldn't understand it before, but now I do. Here, it tells us something like that literally fell from his eyes. I kind of wondered, I don't know if this is the case, if sort of that bright light just sort of burned something onto Paul's eyes. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. He was able to see. The text doesn't say it, but I think it's real safe to assume. He was filled with the Holy Spirit at the same time as well. He went out and he was baptized. He publicly identified himself with this sect. I am putting, I'm putting aside all of that other stuff, my position, my authority, all those other things that I had before. I'm putting that aside, and I am all in with Jesus. I am one of his disciples, he said here. And verse 19 goes on, and for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. The very people he had come to the city to destroy are now his friends but I think even more significantly, his brothers and his sisters in the faith. And Rabbi Saul is now numbered among the disciples of Jesus. One more example of the remarkable transformation that took place in his life. If there's one kind of going away thing to grasp onto, just sort of this concept or idea that you can replay in your mind or retell in your mind as you go from uh, today, I hope it's this, Jesus Christ has the power to change people. Jesus Christ has the power to change people. He changed an angry, violent, openly hostile to the faith man like Rabbi Saul. Later in our Bibles we read, he changed a timid and afraid man like Timothy. From the Gospels we saw, he took two power-hungry young men, James and John, and he gave them hearts of love. We read another account in the Gospels how he gave life, true life, to the promiscuous woman at the well. The story of our Bibles is that Jesus Christ changes people. And the question that it forces us as his followers, and come here just to sort of sit in a nice cool room for a little bit, but we came to hear from the Lord and apply these things to our scripture. The question then with that information is how might he want to change you? How many want to change you? If we've been Christians for a while, if we've been humans for a while, we've probably settled in with certain things in our lives. Well, that's just who I am. That's not true. If you're a Christian, that's just who you were. But in Christ, we are new creations. The old is passing away. All things might become new. And so how many want to change you? Does he want to create in you courage? where there's presently fear? 
That's a work that he does. Does he want to give you the strength? It's an important, important one. To love and forgive someone that's not worthy of those affections? Does he want to take from you your heart of bitterness and replace it with a heart of grace and mercy? Does he want to give you a heart of purity where there's presently lust or carnality? How does God want to change you? Seek the Lord. The scripture says, if you search for me with all your heart, you'll find me. Seek the Lord on these things. Those dark little recesses that are just who we are and how we hide from God. Seek the Lord about those areas as well. Might, what, what might he want to do even in those areas? And as he reveals, our response is to obey. It sounds like a President Biden whispering here to you. Uh, ours is to obey as he reveals, even if it's tiny, friends. Amen? Amen? Jesus Christ changes people. Father, we thank you for that wonderful reality. And Lord, we rest in it. Lord, we thank you for this chapter where we see Saul needing to obey, even without all the information. And then we see a guy like Ananias needing to obey even without all the information. And we're reminded that somewhere in between there is we are. And Lord, you direct and you guide, and it's ours to respond in obedience and to walk in trust. Lord, I pray that you would build that up within us, that we would take those steps of faith, and that we would realize your blessing for having done so. We would experience your hand. We would see the goodness, Lord, that you've accomplished as we walk in the truth. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ, our fellow believers, Lord, that come around us, are able to support us and encourage us. Lord, as we're seeking to run our race and we get tired, they can come out alongside of us and encourage us. You can keep going. You can do it. And we can be an encouragement to them. And so, Lord, your word is indeed holy. It's set apart. It's altogether different. Lord, there's no other text that we could come and sit under and be impacted in the same way that we are by your holy word. We thank you for preserving it. We thank you for providing it. We thank you for giving it to us. And now, Lord, we're asking, Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts in a greater way to take the things that we've considered today and respond in obedience to them. Bless us, Jesus, we pray.